Yeah, so this morning we are talking about Abigail. Uh, We'll look in depth at her story in just a moment. Uh, But she's only mentioned outside of the story a couple times in the scripture. And then when she is mentioned, which you'll be stunned at, she's mentioned as so-and-so's wife. So she's got this epic story, and then a couple other times she's mentioned like, oh yeah, the wife of this other person. You're like, well, it's kind of a like downer for Abigail, but the story is so awesome. Uh, And so we're going to look at this snapshot of this woman who is notably wise. Uh, She reflects her wisdom through her response to revelation, this audacious peacemaking, and then looking at the situation with kind of the long term in mind. So Abigail's story is found in 1 Samuel 25, kind of 4 to 12, but that's a little bit of a, oh, that's a lot of scripture to read. So you should pull out your version because I'm going to tell you the revised Dobraz version, and it's newly revised. It's pretty recent. So pull out your your scripture so you can reference it as we go uh, throughout this morning, but I'll just kind of tell you the story uh, about Abigail. So Abigail is the wife of Nabal. Nabal is, his name means foolish, which is pretty funny, like jokes on you, sucker. Um, Everyone knows about you. Uh, Nabal is very wealthy. He's got a ton of land, a ton of crops, a ton of um, sheep in particular, and uh, his sheep have been out in the grazing area, which is not very safe. So while they were out there with all their sheep, David, who's on the run from Saul, so he's been told that he will be king, but he's not king yet. Uh, He's on the run with his merry band of people, and they come to Nabal's sheep and decide that they're going to protect them because it's this dangerous area. So David's men, out of the goodness of their heart, protect Nabal's sheep. So then the sheep all go in to shearing. After shearing happens, they have this huge festival, at which time David sends one of his people in and says, hey, go to Nabal. We protected his sheep and tell him that we want some of this feast, like some of this festival, because it's this huge party, like enough for everybody. So uh, David's guy goes in. Nabal says, sorry, like, no, we don't want you. You can't come to our party. You can't have any of this. And he kind of does some digs against David. So he says things like, uh, oh, I've heard that there are slaves uprising right now. So he kind of makes this dig about how Saul and David have been interacting. So it's pretty personal no, right? So the, the, um, David's man goes back and says to David, hey, this is what he said. He said, no, like, even though we did this, he said, we're on our own. And so David does what is natural and says, great, we're going to kill them all. Like, literally, he's like, we're going to wipe them out. No one will be standing in Nabal's home. So maybe he overreacted just a little bit. In the meantime, one of Nabal's servants realizes what's going to happen, runs to Abigail, Nabal's wife, and says, this is what happened. He was a fool. Like, he continues to be a fool. We're going to be killed. You have to do something. So Abigail jumps into action, sends a whole bunch of stuff, like food and and, uh, wine and all this stuff to David. And as the stuff is going, she's following behind and comes and says, it's all my fault. Like, this happened because my husband is a fool and, and it's my fault. I'm very sorry. Please don't do this. Here's our hospitality. Like, forgiveness, forgiveness, you are Lord. And then she reminds David, you've been called to be the king. And you can't just go around killing people if you've been called to be the king. Like, think about where you're going and what God has called you to do. And so David says, oh, you're right. Thank you so much. Doesn't kill anybody. But Abigail goes back. Nabal's wasted with, with wine. Uh, and she decides to not tell him just then because he's so drunk. The next morning she goes and she's like, guess what? This is what happened. You were going to be killed. I saved the day, and he dies. (laughs) Like, 
does he have an aneurysm? Does he have a stroke? No one knows. The Bible wasn't clear. Uh, but he dies, which is just like this crazy story of like, uh, you know, we talk about all the time. If you read the Bible, it's very confusing sometimes. Lots of death. But all to be said that justice is given, received, uh, but David didn't have to kill anybody. Like, God took care of it. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. That doesn't always mean killing. It just happened to in this situation. But uh, the story illustrates this problem that plagues all of us, every single one of us, us as a society, us as a group of, of people in some form or fashion, and that really is arrogance, that uh, Nabal's version of it was that he didn't need anybody to take care of, of his blocks, right? He didn't uh, want this up-and-coming guy uh, who perhaps Nabal's loyal to Saul, who knows, uh, but he, he has this arrogance of, I'm not going to give you anything. This is my stuff. You don't need it. So he turns David's men away, uh, not for lack of resources at all. Uh, and then he, he, on the other side, David has this like arrogance of, like, you have just smited me. Like, you have been disrespectful for me. They're, they live in this culture that thrives on hospitality, right? And it's not like, hey, come and have a cup of coffee. It's like, hey, come into my home, stay as long as you need to. I will feed you, I'll protect you, all of these things. It's just part of the Israelite culture. So David, out of this, might react with his own overreaction of, of arrogance, essentially saying, if you're going to treat me this disrespectfully, again, I will kill you. Which, again, arrogance, violence, all of these things, uh, this desire for vengeance, no bueno for any of us at all. This scenario, I think, is played out over and over again, this actual particular scenario, uh, in some sort of way in all of our lives. There are places that I think we struggle with arrogance, or why did somebody treat me this way, or how in the world could they, they think that I should uh, have to pay them or give them anything. But, uh, but David and, oh, we're all connected, I think, in this idea of as humans, we're, we're connected to each other. We have the opportunity to, to love on each other, but yet arrogance oftentimes gets in the way of doing that. I, I'm not going to do this for you because what does that say about me? I'm not uh, a servant or uh, I don't want to look that way. And, uh, and that desire oftentimes for us to get our pound of flesh out of whatever particular situation. So Abigail steps in for Nabal uh, and so that she can protect the household that she's a part of. Uh, she, she steps in to protect the household from his greed, from his hard-heartedness. She also steps in to protect David from his rage, uh, from his revenge. And as both of these are pictures of sin that, again, all of us struggle with, Abigail is this embodiment of wisdom. She's really a picture of Christ in many ways. And she's an example to us as we wrestle with the places where we struggle with arrogance and how we're to react in those places. So first, her response, she has this response to Revelation. Verse 17, disaster is hanging over Nabal and his whole household. He's such a wicked man that nobody can talk to him. And the way that this story is told, you can tell that this is not the first time that a situation like this has happened. Uh, the servant realizes there's a mess, there's a problem he can't solve, and he quickly sees that he needs to take this escalated issue to Abigail, because apparently Abigail seems to be good at solving problems. He thinks that she can. And in this highly patriarchal society, that Abigail is the go-to for wisdom indicates that she has a history of knowing what to do. So the first time you have a crisis, you don't go to who you think is the lowest person on the totem pole. So she's somehow done this enough that people know, oh, she's wise. She's somebody who can help us here. 
Uh, if Nabal is known for his foolishness, I'm guessing that this isn't the first time he's gotten himself into kind of a little bit of a sticky situation. So in verse 18, Abigail acts quickly. She gathers these resources from the household of food and wine, like I mentioned before, and she takes them out to David. And when Abigail is informed of this crisis, she jumps into action, which I think is so cool. In her wisdom, she assesses the situation and decides that this is a situation that requires a physical action, a physical reaction. Ecclesiastes reminds us that there's a time for everything and everything there's a purpose, and we should uh, be thoughtful about how to respond. And oftentimes, when we hear of a crisis, the, re- the, the response that we should do is an active, non-physical one, right? Like prayer. So we respond to crises or things that we hear about actively, but not necessarily by getting involved directly, but by getting involved through prayer, where that um, empowers the Lord to do whatever he's going to do. But then there's also times where the appropriate response is a physical one, to physically get involved and and respond and engage with it. This metaphor of getting your hands dirty, which is how Abigail interprets the situation. My dad is one of those hands dirty kinds of guys in everything in his life. Uh, it's, it's great. There are so many stories of him getting involved with things that really have nothing to do with him and it's really none of his business, but he just always happens to get involved in them. He just sees himself as part of humankind in every way, so it's beautiful. One of the most poignant stories is in fourth grade. We were camping down in California, and we were in the pool, and, you know, I'm a fourth grade I'm in the pool with my dad, like, nothing is better than this. And all of a sudden, I hear this, like, yelling, and and in, like, two seconds, my dad is out of the pool, in his swim trunks, dripping wet, and running down the sidewalk. And so I was like, what's going on? So my mom, like, shouts, stay in the pool, which I interpret as stay in the area where the pool is. Uh, and so I go to the fence and watch as my, I see that there's this man who's like pinning this woman on, like onto this car and yelling. And so I'm like, what's happening? And I see my dad streaking towards them where he like pulls this guy off and I like, there's all this yelling and I don't know what's going on. Of course I start crying because I'm a fourth grader and I see this like situation happening. Uh, the rest of the story goes that, uh, my dad tells the story that this man is like, hey, this woman's stealing my kids, and she's like, hey, this man is abusing us, and we're running from him, and my dad's like, I don't know, you just don't get to, like, treat humans like this, we'll let the police figure it out, and so we all wait in our swimsuits so the police get to the campsite, and then we leave, Uh, and when I think about these stories, which this is honestly just one of many, he has stories from the Northgate Mall, he has stories, I'm not joking, there's so many stories, my, my dad is not, there's nothing about my dad that makes these things happen, right? Like, there's no, like, magnet to other people's tragedy uh, about him at at all. But I I do think that these sorts of situations present themselves all the time. It's just that my dad engages all the time. Like, anytime he sees one, he's like, oh, person's tire is blown out on the freeway. Like, let's pull over. Uh, Like, that's just how he sees them. And I think that really gives us the opportunity to to ask ourselves, oh, should we be getting involved with this? Again, they don't happen more often uh, to my dad. They, he just in, chooses to engage all the time, and so now we have these family stories, most of which are pretty good. Um, in uh, his essay, Hard Work, Not Complacency, Martin Luther King Jr. says, it'll be up there, it may well be that we do not have to repent in this, gen- that, sorry, it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and the indifference of the good people. 
who sit around and say, wait on time. Social progress never rolls in, in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of the persistent work of dedicated individuals. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. And so we must help time. We must realize that the time is always right to do right. So powerful. Obviously, he has a great um, uh, life that reflects that to be true. But the question for us is to use our own wisdom to determine what sort of doing right are we called to in this particular moment. There are certainly many things that we could engage with. Uh, and I would critique myself and say that I don't engage oftentimes because, one, it seems like a lot of other people are engaging, so they'll take care of it, uh, or it's just overwhelming. Like, I don't know what to do. It's really easy to feel overwhelming, overwhelmed or uncertain about what to do, but we can ensure without a doubt that we are all called to engage with things that uh, are systemic evil or systemic sin around us, where there's racism, abuse, or any other acts of oppression, there's no question whether or not you should or should not respond. It's just a question of how you're going to respond. Because, of course, that's who Christ is. That's who we've, what we've been called to do is to act. So Abigail receives this news that crisis is upon them. She weighs the situation and acts with boldness. And as she acts with boldness, she brings peace with her. So second is this audacious peacemaking. Abigail does this peacemaking by going straight to the source. She goes to David herself. She humbles herself that we see in verse 23. She brings gifts that we see in verse 27. She intercedes and confesses where she says again, it's my fault, I'm so sorry, my husband's a fool in verses 25 and 28. So this is a direct illustration that we see in Christ. Uh, Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. As we respond in arrogance, because we're flawed people who are working through that, worried about the slight that somebody has done among us or how uh, it's their place to ask something of us and how we respond to that, Christ invites us, calls us to service and humility. He even gives examples of what that looks like. Throughout the scripture, we see that Christ goes to the source. He moves to the places where the problem is, whether that's going to the people who are actively ill or to hard-hearted religious leaders. He moves towards them rather than away from them. He sees them, understands them, engages with them. In this, he humbles himself. I mean, this is the king of the world who's like, yep, I'm going to you. There's no part of creation that he won't be with or next to. We know that we're supposed to be humble, and I work very hard to convince people that I am for sure. But when we see Jesus touching lepers and talking to people of ill repute, which are whether that's tax collectors or prostitutes or such, or the washing of his disciples' feet just before his, his crucifixion, we know that this guy isn't playing at humility. He really is embodying humility. It's who he is. These ultimate acts of destroying class dividing walls that it's God in the flesh who's doing these good works, who are called to serve those who are on the low end of the social scale, the lowest servant. It's him really giving these beautiful gifts of healing and forgiveness and hope in the life of companion, or and, and life in companionship. It's just such a beautiful thing. 
Uh, and then we see in Romans uh, 8.34 that Christ intercedes on our behalf. So all these things that Abigail did, uh, we see again in Christ. That she really is this picture that, uh, that Christ embodies and Christ calls us to. So wisely, Abigail responds to Revelation by bringing peace, not the sword. Uh, instead of rallying Nabal's uh, household to be like, well, they're coming, let's just put up a fight, like not go down, uh, you know, without a fight, she aims for peace and she aims for reconciliation. We can break these cycles of systemic evil, so again, racism, violence, etc., by crossing the divides, similar to Christ. Uh, in Christ, we're all broken and we're called to go, to serve from a posture of humility, to give gifts, to intercede for others. Uh, my nephew is, I'm his legal guardian, which is a real long story, but that's how it works. And when he came a couple years ago, uh, sorry, uh, he was a hot mess, like disaster, like violent in every single way, physically, verbally, uh, emotionally. I mean, it was terrible. And that's because there were a lot of things going on, which is why he came in the first place. And so one way I found that I could get him to stop, whatever it was, hitting somebody, screaming, whatever, was to, to be intimidating, to like be physically intimidating to him. So I never touched him, uh, but you definitely can like throw open a door or get in his face and he would stop. And it really was a, an effective situation in that moment. And you can feel free to judge me all you want because I judge myself often about like desperate times call for desperate measures. And this is like how to stop the war or how to stop the battle in the middle of the day when it was like battle number 17. So I hope some of you know how this can, how life can be like this. So I realized, uh, gosh, probably a month in, that though I was winning the battles with my tactics of intimidation, I really wasn't winning the war uh, because it, it wasn't changing anything. We just had another battle in two seconds. Uh, and I didn't like who I was. I didn't like who I was modeling to him about how to deal with anger. Uh, and again, he had a lot of things going on. Uh, but, and I also didn't like that it put, it as, put us at odds with each other. So in order to win this battle, I had to like be bigger than him or be louder or whatever. And again, nothing they need to call CPO or the Child Protective Services about. But, um, but over time, and again, a lot of changes because again, there's a whole lot going on with him. I found that when I could beseech his own humanity in those situations, and it took a while for him to like get to a place where he could hear me, uh, but where I could say, oh man, like, I don't think this is who you are, or I don't know that, uh, that this is what you want to do, or I think in 10 minutes you're going to be really upset that you're saying these sorts of things to whomever it is. That when I could uh, beseech his humanity and be alongside him in that, that there began to, to be some change, that I could be for him, I could be alongside of him, I could help uh, guide him towards a more peaceful resolution than whatever uh, was causing him to be upset. That I could remind him that what he was saying was really going to hurt my feelings. And I knew how much he loved me, but it was hurting my feelings that he was saying this. I didn't think he was that type of kid. Like, there really has been this incredible change. And again, thank God for medication. But also, uh, I think that, like, my portion of contributing to his peacefulness is to be peaceful and to be inviting him into this. So I think Abigail does this, this great example uh, that I have found very effective in my own life of how do we bring peace into violent situations uh, in, in any way. So finally, we see Abigail looking at the situation with the long term in mind, which we see from verses 28 and 31. David for sure, has been treated unjustly, definitely. Hospitality is this bedrock 
of Jewish culture, and he's been slighted in multiple ways. Uh, he does this uh, protection of, of Nabal's uh, sheep out of the goodness of his heart, and now he's being treated very poorly. His men have been treated poorly. But Abigail looks beyond the present circumstances to the future and reminds David of who he is, that he is God's anointed, that she says, you are called by God and God will provide for you. In verse 29, it says, if anyone stands in your way, if anyone tries to get you out of the way, know this, your God-honored life is tightly bound in the bundle of God's protected life. But the lives of your enemies will be hurled aside as the stone is thrown from the sling. Kind of that picture of his past, right? With, with Goliath and, you've, and where uh, God has been in that, in that situation as well. Abigail reminds David of where he's been, the call that God has put on his life, and that he is king. And kings don't act like this. Uh, Kings don't go around seeking vengeance. That to not get bogged down in this situation and lose picture of the of the long the long story, the bigger story that's being written. Abigail reminds David of who he is, his true identity, because he's lost sight of it in this moment. We all have those folks in our lives who either remind us of who we are when we aren't being that person or who when we forget who we are. That we, and, and not only do they remind us of who we are, which is beautiful, they also give us pictures that we can be that type of people to other people. There's certainly these generic sources of inspiration that you, know, you can look on Facebook and there's things that are so beautiful. The rhinos that are being saved, the military actions that are saving uh, lives, all of those things, all the Marvel heroes are so uh, inspiring. Uh, but but the, the people that change the course of our lives are the people who help us see our truest self in those times that we can't see who we are. Our deepest identity, our highest calling. That, and those are the voices not only should we listen to, uh, but we, like Ab- Abigail, can be those voices to each other, uh, reminding folks of the larger calling that God has placed on their lives, that what they're going through right now is tough and is hard and circumstantial and, like, we get it, that's tough, and it's also a portion of the story. It's not the whole story. Abigail is, an, is another very cool woman. I uh, weaseled my way into this just because I was like, Brad, this is awesome, I want to I teach, and he's like, great, come. Uh, because there's so many amazing women in the Bible who give us these incredible uh, examples. And, and Abigail here is showing us these characteristics of wisdom. These characteristics of hospitality, how she's a peaceful problem solver. She's really prophetic in many ways. And it, it asks us to ask the question, where are the places that we need to respond to Revelation? that we've, we've heard the truth, we've heard what's going on, what God is telling us, and we need to do something about it. We need to act in some physically active way or in an active way that's a little bit more sedentary. And that when we do act, we're acting towards peace, that how do we bring peace into these places? And then reminding others of who they are in Christ as we respond as well, reminding them of the long-term vision of what their life is. So as we close, uh, I'm going to ask the Lord to give us our own wisdom wisdom in the places that uh, we are asking those questions. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life of Abigail. I thank you that she uh, really is this picture of of Christ, picture of of who you've called us to be. Lord, I know that in all of our lives, there are these places where wisdom is needed, where we need to act, where we want to bring peace, where we want to remind people of who you have invited them to be. 
Lord, I pray for your wisdom. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak really uniquely to each of us about how to do that, what that looks like. And then, Lord, I pray for your courage that we would not do anything that you're uh, calling us not to do, but that we wouldn't refrain from what it is you are calling us to do. So, Lord, please, as a community, help us to encourage each other in that. And also pray that as a community, our, our existence here in Ballard would really impact Ballard. Uh, that Ballard would be a better place because you are here and, and this church is here. Lord, we just pray for your wisdom in that. In your name, amen.